morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever and whenever you are in the world, welcome to the sixth edition of the Scottish Field Podcast, released on the 28th of April, 2021. Thanks for joining us today. My name's Kenny Smith, and I'm the web editor of Scottish Field. And over the next half hour or so, we're going to bring you three exclusive interviews, as well as sharing details of a special offer if you subscribe to our digital edition. Today, we're going to head to Orkney to meet Scottish Fields wildlife writer Cal Flynn. We'll have another excerpt from Rosie Morton's exclusive chat with Outlander star Sam Hewen, which is in our latest edition, which is still in shops, as well as meeting book publisher Kay Hutchison. And we'll have some brief clips of Scots actors Bill Patterson and the late, great John Sessions too. Every month, Scottish Field brings you the best of all things Scottish. Heritage, interiors, antiques, gardens, wildlife, motoring, whisky and country news, as well as interviews with famous Scots names. Our May edition is in the shops now, priced £4.75 and you can buy it online too. I'll share these details with you before the end of today's podcast, along with a special subscription offer, where you can get a free copy of Sam Hewen's new book, Clan Lands, While Stocks Last. Our first guest today is Cal Flynn who recently took on the position as Scottish Fields Wildlife Writer. Her recent features have included red squirrels, razor clams and butterflies. Cal is also a novelist and will be chatting about her books to date too. In the current issue, Cal took a pony trek from the east coast to the west and today she tells us how her love of all things in nature began. My name is Cal Flynn. I'm a writer and a journalist. I'm based in Stromness in Orkney. How did you develop an interest in animals, wildlife and the outdoors? Oh, I guess I always have been interested. I grew up in Invernessshire and we lived in the countryside and I suppose I was coming of age around the animals of farthing wood period. So I was one of these uh, like fully paid up members. I got my weekly magazine and so I learned all about British wildlife through there from a very young age was really an obsessive fan. So I think it started from then and since then, I don't know, I just always take any opportunity to be out and about I did live for a a period in cities, but then I found myself drawn back to to living in the countryside and being outside more and more. So uh, now where I am in Orkney, I'm surrounded mainly by seabirds. Also, we have sort of moor and heathland and a lot of uh, marine mammals. So it's a really good spot to be spotting some unusual British residents. So how did your writing career develop? When I was at university, I got very involved in the student newspaper So I wrote all sorts of nonsense for it at the time, but it did give me a start. And so I got into being a junior reporter at Sunday Times, where I was for a couple of years in London. And I worked briefly at The Telegraph. But what I knew I wanted to do and what I'd always been doing all along was sort of writing more more literary content. So I started off writing sort of poetry when I was a bit younger. and, And these days I tend to write what's called creative nonfiction I combine that with my journalism. So I, I write non-fiction book, my latest being Islands of Abandonment, which is about the ecology and psychology of abandoned places. And uh, I combine that with sort of writing country diaries or this wildlife column that I do for the Scottish Field. So how did you come to be involved with Scottish Field initially? Oh, that's a great question. My friend Louise Gray, she was working for a while as a deputy editor of Scottish Field. We were flatmates in Edinburgh and she said that Scottish Field was starting a horsey magazine called EQI or Equestrian Year. They were looking for horsey people to, 
to start writing equestrian features and so I jumped at the chance because I'm a big sort of horse fan I always have been I used to compete when I was younger and I still um, I don't own my own horse at the moment but I'm always riding other people's horses and so I'm quite used to being thrown on any kind of mount and I'll, I'll sort of like very gratefully jump aboard whatever horse it is so I leapt at the chance to write about equestrian features and then I just got more and more involved, I think, in the whole Scottish field stable and started writing general features. And then Richard asked me to start doing this regular column. So I've really been enjoying that because, as I say, it sort of plays into this, this interest that I've had for a long time in wildlife. And now I'm, I'm paid to find out more and more about it. So that's great. The columns you've done so far, which has been your favourite? particularly enjoyed the red squirrel. <laughs> Thank you. I really enjoyed... One about the Bass Rock, when I went out in a boat zipping around the Bass Rock, looking at Europe's biggest gannet colony. That was great fun because you get close to the close to the rock and they all sort of launch up into the air and they're all swirling around above you and diving into the sea right next to you. So that's just wonderful. I really enjoyed visiting the Isle of May as well, which are also more seabirds, but lots of puffins sort of digging burrows right next to you. And they're, they're pretty um, fearless. So that's a wonderful day trip that you can do from Fife or, or East Lothian. Yeah, you can get a boat from there. So that's a wonderful day out for anyone who fancies getting up close and personal with seabirds during the breeding seasons, which is sort of May or June. You've fairly recently taken over doing column. So anything that you would particularly like to do? Ooh, that's a great question. I'm always really interested in marine mammals, but it can be a little bit difficult to write about them because sightings aren't reliable, you know. So uh, yesterday here, we were racing around hoping to see minke whales who were swimming in the mouth of the harbour here. So we were standing up with our binoculars, but we weren't lucky. We saw the fishing boat that had reported them sort of swirling around in the mouth of the harbour looking for them to come back. But we'd missed them by 10 minutes. So anything to do with marine mammals, always fascinated by. And I hope to write about capercaillies in the near future. I would just love to see one for myself because they're out there still, even if they're only in sort of small fragments of habitat. So I know that they're, they're around and I would really love to take them off my list. Just when you mentioned capercaillies the conservation of animals in particular is something that i think is really the awareness is growing particularly in scotland for the animals that have like the capercaillies the red squirrels do you see that has been quite an important part of the job to be able to educate people and let them know you might have seen pictures of these things but they may not be around forever unless we actually do something about it today Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's really important. And I do think that awareness of this issue is pretty good these days. One thing I hadn't realised until I sort of got more into to writing about wildlife and conservation in Scotland is, is quite how complicated an issue it is and how often people working in conservation don't know what the best way forward is. And so it's so competing philosophies, you know, about how best to, to go ahead, how protective we need to be, how, I guess, paternalistic we need to be about different species. So I think that's really interesting concept to to write about you know we have questions of culls you know what's the most ethical thing to do is it is it a good thing to cull one species to to protect another so all of these sort of ethical issues I'm really fascinated by and and it's great to get a chance to speak to people on the front line and find out what drives them and find out you know what their philosophy is and and why they think it's going to work. Let's chat a wee bit about some of your books that you've done to date. Islands of Abandonment I think it's a wonderful title tell us a wee bit more about that (laughs) one. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So this is my brand new book. It just came out in January. It is about how nature rebounds in abandoned places, abandoned landscapes. So 
For example, probably the poster child example is the Chernobyl exclusion zone, which has been abandoned since the accident in 1986, but has now become a real sort of hot spot, despite the contamination for things like wolves, for storks, for a lot of species that have been sort of losing their grip on mainland Europe. So I think people are very intrigued by this idea that that very damaged places can sort of recover that they can regenerate and certainly a lot of the places that I go to in my book are real redemption stories in that sense so I went to 13 different places some of them in Scotland and some of them sort of all over the world I was in Tanzania to look at an abandoned botanical garden and how these exotic species were sort of breaking into the rainforest around the old botanical garden I went to America to places like Detroit to talk to people who lived in very um, well they call them like blighted neighborhoods the ones which are really marked by abandonment and to a place called the Salton Sea which is a a man-made lake a saline lake which is evaporating away into the I suppose it's it's in the middle of the desert and it's just evaporating away kind of an environmental disaster story but also I guess in my book I'm looking to find silver linings and things and how I guess the way forward how things might recover. And of course, your previous book was Thicker Than Water, which received a, a lot of critical praise, including being listed by the Times as one of its top books of 2016. That must have been quite a fascinating insight for you, given the family connection to that. Could maybe tell us a wee bit about the book, what it's about and, and what you learned and, and how that actually made you feel. It must have been quite sort of fascinating. And then the full horror came out. Sure, absolutely. So Thicker Than Water is a story of a distant relative of mine, a great-great-great-uncle, who I discovered had been an explorer in Australia, which I thought was very exciting. And when I started digging into the story, I found out that actually he had also been implicated as a ringleader of a number of massacres in early colonial Australia. So Thicker Than Water was, I guess, my my journey to Australia in his footsteps and sort of uncovering what had happened in, in his life. It was a very sort of idealistic religious young man he'd gone to create a new life for himself in the new world and yet in sort of five years he had become apparently a a ringleader of massacres so I suppose I was interested in in how that came to happen in his case but also in in many other instances across colonial Australia because this was a pattern we see a lot of and also in other countries like America Canada, you know, many of these places where we saw a wave of colonists around the same period or, or in the centuries previously, and a similar pattern of, of bloodshed being played out. So I guess I was interested in how that came to happen. And, and also what, you know, today's generation, what, what do we owe? Is there a case for reparations? Is there a case for public apologies? All of this kind of thing. So it was quite, yeah, quite a, an emotionally taxing book to write and also led to quite a lot of sort of like strange and awkward conversations with people from the Aboriginal group who I was talking to, this is in Gippsland in Australia. So I went out there three times of about four to six weeks each to to go and sort of make contact with present day members of that Aboriginal group and just sort of uncover, you know, the, the impact of, of those massacres over over the intervening decades and, and centuries. So what can we look forward to from you next? <laughs> well, I'm hard at work, hopefully on a new big proposal. So better keep that under my hat for now until it's actually confirmed. So I'll keep working on that. But people who like the outdoors and wildlife and all of that kind of thing, I think will hope to find something of interest in this new book. And if people are looking for more information on your first two books, where can they find that? 
great. Yes, I would love that. My website is calflynn.com. Uh, I've got a sort of historical spelling mistake in my name. So it's calflynn, Flynn with one N. That's C-A-L-F-L-Y-N.com. Do come along. That'd be great. And yeah, have a look at my books. <laughs> Fantastic. Cal, thanks very much for your time today. That's great. Thanks for having me on. Now, last week we brought you some more of Rosie Morton's chat with Outlander star Sam Hewen when he talked about his childhood, going on holiday and visiting places like Ayr and going to the theatre there. Today, Sam's going to tell us how his book Clanlands came about, as well as the accompanying TV series with his Outlander co-star Graham McTavish. Over to you again, Rosie. Let's go with Clanlands. Why? Why did you want to do it in the first place? Yeah, it's a good question. Was it just yeah. to annoy Graham, was it, or was it actually yeah. genuinely to, to learn about Scotland? Yeah, probably. So I obviously work on Outlander and just realised, firstly, how much I love Scotland and how much I enjoy, you know, sharing what I've learned or what I find of Scotland. And I've met so many great characters and seen so many great locations. And then I realised that people also of Outlander, they, they love that Scottish story. They love the Highlanders and the, the Scottish segment of, of Outlander. So I wanted to create my own TV show around that. And then by chance, at that point when I was sort of looking into it, Graham and I had a had a drink in Los Angeles and he told me about an idea he had like 30 years ago about doing a, a documentary and just made me realize, why don't we just, just get out there and do it? So I might put sort of team together while I was shooting on Outlander. And at the weekends, we just shot over like three weekends, four mm-hmm. weekends. And yeah, I think it just evolved naturally. I think I wanted to make it Quite like, you know, like the adventure show that we have here in Scotland or like an outdoorsy show. I'm really into that. And Graham obviously is, you know, a lot more interested in, in the historical side. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what kind of really complements each other, you know. And then, of course, I realized that he's a big pussycat. And <laughs> it just made me, you know, really excited to, to wind him up. And it's, it's a great dynamic, you know. I think we really got a lot of chemistry there. And I think you can see it in the book and, and hopefully in the show as well. Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait to see the show. And have you got a UK, UK date yet? Is that what everyone's asking? Yeah, I know, and obviously I've seen the frustration as well, and the fans are like, you know, when is this going to be out? And I'm like, I'm with you, I'm totally with you, you know. We sold the show, and uh, it's it's really about Sony kind of finding a place for it in, in the UK and the streaming here, but I, I think they're close, I think they've been working on it, and uh, we've been told it we should find out soon, so uh, I remain hopeful that it will actually be on here soon. I mean, I remember Outlander, though, that wasn't shown in the UK for three years, it then went to more for and you know there was scandal around that so who knows who knows what will happen with it there's so much to gain from that relationship between you and graham with you know as you say the historical side that graham really enjoys and then you just enjoying messing around and how long did it take you to sort of plan all of these like the motorbike scenario that was a good little chapter you put in yeah so i pretty much did it all of sort of uh, putting it together and uh, graham came out and we kind of we, we planned who we'd see and where we'd see it, where mm-hmm. we'd go, and who we'd meet each day. But there really wasn't any content structured, so it was very organic. And we're like, well, just, just turn up and see what happens. Point the camera. At. But fortunately, you know, we, we chose some great locations and great characters. And then, yeah, I mean, all these things really happened. You know, the motorbikes certainly. And obviously, in writing the book, we've sort of dramatized it a bit and maybe messed the moved the time round timeline around a bit. But yeah, yeah I mean. It was uh, it was kind of dramatic, and he almost did, uh, so, uh, did yeah. lose uh, part of his part of his body. But um, yeah, it was just great fun. You know, we we laughed a lot, and 
he's such a he's such a great character you know very reliably grumpy and and also great fun and hungry all the time i mean the man <laughs> it's incredible because he's i mean you know i like to remind him he's older than me and and he's in great shape he loves to dine out and eat you know big, big, great amounts of food and he doesn't stop i mean he literally will have breakfast a big breakfast he'll get in the, the camper van and within minutes he's talking about how hungry he is again and i'm just like like i, I don't understand it <laughs> but he's a great metabolism clearly it stands him in good stead so sounds like my kind of guy yeah, <laughs> yeah. eating all yeah, the time right. um so what was the highlight for you and if you join us for next week's episode we'll share more of our chat with sam including his reaction to Rosie asking him about James Bond. As I mentioned earlier, we have a very special subscription offer at present, which is valid until the end of May 2021. For just £50, you can get a three-year digital subscription and a free hardback copy of Sam Hewen's book, Clanlands, worth £20, while stocks last. To subscribe and access this very special offer, visit www.mymagazinesub.com dot co dot uk forward slash scottish field forward slash promo forward slash club sub zero one that's c l u b s u b zero one our third and final guest today is Kay hutchison a journalist and publisher her father was robin hutchinson a ship captain on the river clyde whose memoir Hurricane Hutch's Top 10 Ships of the Clyde was first published in 2013, a book that was as much a social history as it was about ships and shipping. Following a career in the Merchant Navy, Robin became one of the youngest captains to serve in the Firth of Clyde, becoming one of the most prominent post-war masters during his 35 years on Scotland's west coast. Now, the book has been given a new lease of life, as actor Bill Patterson narrates the funny, sad an enlightening story, bringing alive a remarkable personal perspective on a fast-fading era. Robin sadly died in September 2018, aged 85, but his daughter Kay, the publisher of his book, joins us today. My name is Kay Hutchison. I'm an author and a publisher of books, and my, my background is actually in TV and radio. That's where I did most of my year. But the book we're going to talk about today actually is the book that set me on a new path with publishing. So what is that book and how did it change your life? <laughs> well, the book is called Hurricane Hutch's Top 10 Ships of the Clyde. And essentially, um, when my father was getting old, we were sort of thinking, we've been talking for years and years and years about all of his amazing stories, his life on the, the kind of the high seas around the world, but also his experience when he came back to uh, be a captain on the Clyde and many years working with crew and have funny stories. And really it was a, a story that really needed to be told. And although I've got this background in media, I had absolutely done nothing. We, we just thought my father would, would do something himself because he was such a raconteur, but he didn't. And we suddenly realised that actually, if we were going to have something, we had to do it ourselves. So we sat down with my father and we started writing uh, his, 
book and, and doing all the research, bringing together images from the Clyde River Steamer Club, Imperial War Museum, the Riverside Museum in Glasgow, National Museums of Scotland, and also our own family photographs. And we began to write this, this book. And that's how it all started really. And that's how I got into publishing. And from then on, we enjoyed that experience so much that we, we have kept going. So how long would it have taken to write the book? <laughs> uh, right, that, that is a really interesting question because I'm talking about we, but I run the business with Richard Dijkstra. He's my business partner. And we actually thought we would get the book done uh, as quickly as we possibly could so that my dad, who's getting a bit older by then, could actually see it and maybe have it for his Christmas. So we started about five months before Christmas and believe it or not, we devoted all of our time to it. And within five months, we had brought together all my father's stories and the images and it was ready to print. And we published it in the six months after we started. So it, it was very fast. Normally these things would take years to write or could take years to write, but we were on a mission. And I think for us, we didn't really know enough about the publishing industry. We didn't think about it. We just got on and produced it with my father. Having had a wee look over the synopsis, it seems to be quite an incredible career with the Merchant Navy and becoming one of the youngest captains to serve on the Firth of Clyde. I know. I, I think what's so wonderful about my father is he'd always, since he was a very young lad, he ran away to sea at the age of nine. He always knew what he wanted to do. He loved the sea. He was an only child. He was actually very comfortable, you know, being on his own. But the sea was the big draw for, for him. And he'd always had a dream of sailing all around the world. And in fact, he did that quite early on. He went to the nautical college, he got all his qualifications, and he was doing all these, these trips around the world. In fact, he was around the world six times before he eventually came back um, to, to Scotland. But it was in his blood. There was just no doubt about it. And I think, I think for him, at first, I think it was quite a big sacrifice, giving up going around the world. But when he met my mother and began to have a family, the idea of him being away for nine months at a time, which had been the way it had been before, was just really no good for my mother. And so he decided to come back, but he was immediately applying for jobs on CalMac because it was very hard to get jobs in those days and you had to be very good to get in. So he eventually got a job there and mate and then master. And then he, he's just a personality, my father. He was just such a, a kind of witty, clever, funny, cheeky person. And I think a lot of people just enjoyed sailing with him. He certainly had a brilliant sense of camaraderie, but real professionalism on board. He was very much respected as a real gentleman and treated people uh, properly, but was quite firm as well. It's been a few years since the book was first published. So what led to the release of an audiobook version and, and in particular this narrator that you've managed to get? Yes, indeed. I think, we, as I said, we, we did a bit of a detour. when After we'd done the Hurricane Hutch book and it was uh, quite successful, quite 
very quite quickly, really. And we went on to do a reprint of the book. It's a hardback coffee table type book, lots of colour, beautiful pictures and, and actually nicely designed as well. We had a brilliant designer working on that. And we suddenly thought, oh, great, this publishing lark is really good. We, we like this. And of course, we then stepped into the puddle, which is a sort of publishing industry w- without really knowing very much about it. That was obviously a, a relatively niche product and it had an audience that was there that we really wanted. But we were interested in doing other books. And one of them was, well, my, my father's nickname was Hurricane Hutch because he always went out in, it seemed to me when I was young, in terrible weather and managed to get people safely across from the islands, no matter how bad the weather was. But he also had another funny nickname, which was Captain Bobo, which was a name given to him when one of his friend's children on board said, say hello to Captain Robin. And if the wee kid couldn't say Robin, and out came Bobo. And of course, there's all these sailors and crew standing around listening to this, and they burst out laughing. That was his uh, not quite so so glamorous title. So I had wanted to take some of the stories, the many stories that didn't fit into Hurricane Hutch, but were really, really funny and small. And we'd done a lot of research talking to people in Rossi and Danoon and all these, you know, Iron Islands. And we'd gathered these stories and we wanted to, to turn them into something for children because they were just so sweet and so lovely and, and kind of wholesome. So we were already thinking about doing children's books based on the real Hurricane Hutch, but the funny ones. And we also started writing a book, a book series called Tigeropolis. And so the Tigeropolis and Adventures of Captain Bobo books kind of made us see what publishing was really about and slowed us down quite a bit. So it was only more recently when we began working with John Sessions on the the radio series that we did of the Adventures of Captain Bobo children's books, that we thought, actually, we really must have an audiobook of Hurricane Hutch. It's it's just crying out for it. It's a wonderful story. And I think when some people look at the book, they might think, oh, it's just all about ships. It's just for men. It's just, but it's not. It's really quite a broad interest tale of a man and his life on the Clyde. And it also brings in aspects of the social history of the Clyde as well. And we thought, wouldn't it be lovely to have an audiobook that brings the warmth and the personality out um, from the words on the page? And of course, we we were thinking about, right, who will we, who would really do a good job here? And we decided we would try and see if there was any way we could get the actor Bill Patterson to narrate because we knew he was interested in uh, the ships and had grown up around the ships and but also has this most wonderful voice the sort of tonality of warmth and authority at the same time so we approached him and unbelievably for us because you know we're quite a small publisher he said yes in fact, uh, he absolutely loved it. In, in fact, he rarely does audiobooks. And he said he'd kind of come out of audiobook retirement 
especially to do this one because it was really calling out to him. It was really one for him and he couldn't resist. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of an anorak myself, but this is also a really interesting and, and nice warm story. Hurricane Hutch's Top Ten Ships of the Clyde. Written by Captain Robin L. Hutchison. Narrated by Bill Patterson. In this book, I've tried to give you my own personal take on a slowly fading era on the Clyde. When I first started work in the steamers, it was in the late 50s, and the Caledonian Steam Packet Company ships were still an integral part of life for the dozens of coastal communities that hugged the Clyde estuary. The boats were built to cater for a range of needs. In peak season, a crowded boat could have upwards of a thousand passengers on board. There were passengers commuting to and from the thriving industrial towns, there were people using the boats to reach their holiday destinations, and those simply seeking a great day out. People sometimes fail to appreciate just how wide a social mix used our services. The well-to-do and the not-so-well-to-do all enjoyed using the boats, and the ships therefore provided a mix of comfort, speed and affordability. It's such a recognisable voice, and it's a, it's a very warm, reassuring voice you know, for yourself just to hear the stories come to life with that. It must have been, from a personal point of view, quite pleasant, a happy experience. It was, quite, it was actually quite moving, um, if I'm honest with you, because I think I've, al I've always felt that listening to an audiobook takes you into a different world. It, it's almost a different, it's a different way of experiencing your, your, your reading experience is so different. But when I listen to Bill, I mean, obviously you have this recognition of this famous voice, but there is something really uh, beautiful about the tone and the fact that he comes from that area, he loved the boats, that is infused into his telling. And, you know, I could, I could imagine my father being absolutely amazed and delighted that um, Bill Patterson agreed to, to do it because I really think he's done such a wonderful job of, of the audiobook. I would imagine that as a publisher, the last 12 months have been an interesting time for you. Indeed. Uh, actually, it's been quite... A challenging in a way um, for all of us personally but we were very very busy because we ended up winning funding to do a, a radio series of the Captain Bobo book and we did a 10-part radio series based on 10 different stories of Captain Bobo. We won this money and we suddenly thought oh gosh we've got to deliver this quite soon because we, it had to be done before Christmas because it was on Fun Kids Radio and also we had in our application we had said that we would also do it in Gaelic in Scottish Gaelic and so we did that because if you read the Hurricane Hutch book you know that my father really admired the Gaelic sailors that actually were on the Clyde for most of the, the summer season and he had a, a very strong relationship with these people when we, whenever we went to the Outer Hebrides, to Barra, to stay, we would quite often go and meet some of his ex-crew members and spend time with them. So there's quite a bond there. And we thought this would be such a wonderful way to reconnect. And then we ended up 
having the books translated into Gaelic, we not only did a, a radio series that was broadcast in Gaelic speaking radio stations around the, the around Scotland, also in Nova Scotia, because they have a Gaelic speaking crowd over there as well. But the main thing that we did was we had this uh, radio series narrated by John Sessions. It was the day of the annual Marin Highland Games. As usual, the famous paddle steamer Red Gauntlet had brought hundreds of excited visitors, athletes and pipers over from the mainland to enjoy the fun. As the last pipe band marched ashore, Captain Bobo turned to the first officer. Well, Sheila, another job well done. Will not be needed again until this evening. Why don't we sail up Loch Stewart? It's beautiful up there. Half an hour later, Sheila pointed out an old pier up ahead. That's Ravenhead Pier, said Captain Bobo. It's not been used in 20 years. Look, exclaimed Sheila, looking through her binoculars. Is that someone waving? Sheila handed him the binoculars. It's old Jean. It's not like her to wave like that. There must be something wrong. I'm taking her into the pier. Again, like Bill, he had experience, you know, born in Largs, absolutely loved the ships. He was, he was a bit of an anorak too. He loved doing the narration of these. And he loved the fact that we were doing it in Gaelic as well. So we had, it was, there's so many wonderful little connections here. The Gaelic speaker was from Uist. His name is Gillibridge Macmillan. He's a folk singer. He runs lectures in Glasgow University for Gaelic. But not only that, he was Gwilin the Bard in Outlander. And so funny, so was Bill Patterson in Outlander. So was John Sessions. And we ended up with this absolutely wonderful thing. We were working with all these great voices on producing you know, these, these new things connected with our books. But the radio series, The Adventures of Captain Bobo, it's still available. It's still online. You can hear it. And what a wonderful job both Gilly Bridget Macmillan and John Sessions did. So one in English, one in Gaelic. And that was, that was really a lovely experience. And where can people hear those? Do you know the website addresses to hand? I do. You can listen to the Fun Kids Radio podcast and all of the Captain Bobo episodes are still up there. So there are new stories that we haven't yet published. And also, if you go on the Radio Sky um, online catch-up service, all of the episodes are there in Gaelic. I think they've also got English ones, but it, they've definitely got them in Gaelic as well. And also Radio Kirkcaldy, K107 FM Kirkcaldy, they have a, an online um, service as well, and they're all up there. So there was quite a lot of buzz and interest in these radio series when they, they started. And we're about to turn them into an, a set of audiobooks with extra questions and extra material to make it a bit more interesting. So we're, we're, we're still working on them. So although lockdown was difficult for us all, we, we suddenly got very, very busy. And I think it was a good thing because it kept us out of trouble. And finally, on top of the Captain Bobo projects, what else have you got up your sleeves for the coming months? 
Well, we are about to publish the next books in the Captain Bobo series in Gaelic and English, because we've only published two so far. We've now got 10 stories. So we've got book three, which is based in London. We're producing that physical book in both uh, English and in Gaelic as well. So that's good. That's keeping us busy. And we're also talking about developing an animated series of Captain Bobo as well. We've always wanted to do that because we've been interested in visual for a long time. And we're also hopefully going to do another radio series, but of our other children's books. So lots of things in the offing, but they, they all take a bit of time. But that, that's really quite exciting thing to do. And you can find out more about the printed and audiobook versions of Hurricane Hutch and Captain Bobo at the following websites www.hurricanehutch.co.uk and www.captainbobo.co.uk That's C-A-P-T-A-I-N-B-O-B-O Talking of all things internet, remember you can follow Scottish Field on our social media. You can find us on Twitter at www.twitter.com forward slash Scottish Field. We have a Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash Scottish Field. Or you can see our Instagram page at www.instagram.com forward slash Scottish Field Mag. That's M-A-G at the end. And of course, you can pop by our website www.scottishfield.co.uk which contains unique content that you won't find in the print magazine. That's all we've got time for in this episode, but we'll be back with another edition of the podcast next week when we'll speak with Helen McKinnon about the forthcoming Perth Festival as well as some more of our exclusive interview with Sam Hewan. Until then, this has been the Scottish Field Podcast. Be seeing you 